first this morning, number 96663, Marvin Clare versus A.O. Smith Corporation. Mr. Byrd. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the last predicate, criminal last predicate act rule of accrual is the most appropriate rule for civil racketeering claims for three reasons. First, it takes account of the unique elements of this cause of action. Secondly, it is consistent with the congressional objectives and underlying policies of the law. Third, it greatly reduces the administrative and judicial burden and the economic burden upon the parties because of its ease of application. Selection of a rule of accrual in RICO must, first of all, take account of the sui generis nature of this cause of action and its unique pattern element. In a garden variety tort case, say a car accident, for example, all of the elements are present at the beginning. This explains the normal or traditional rule of accrual. In a RICO case, this is not true because the injury must arise out of a pattern of racketeering activity and the pattern itself must also be per perpetrated by a RICO enterprise. These well, you're, you're assuming when you say that all of the elements don't have to be present at the beginning, you're assuming that if I am injured by the first of three predicate acts, I have suffered a RICO uh, injury, aren't you? I mean, I agree if I'm, if, 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 I've, if I'm injured by the second of three predicate acts, I have suffered a RICO injury, but we've never held that the person who is injured by the first of what later becomes a series of predicate acts has suffered a RICO injury, have we? Well, no, this Court has not held that. However, I think an analysis of what a, a pattern of racketeering is would help in answering that question if, if, if you want me to go on, I will, but my understanding of a pattern of racketeering activity is that it is simply a definition that can only be determined in retrospect, such that even, even two predicate acts, for example, don't necessarily constitute a pattern. But, but if the injury precedes the pattern, it's rather hard to say that it was a RICO injury. Well, uh, the, and and I'm, not, I'm not sure that that's necessary in your case. No, it's not necessary in our case, but let me... It is necessary to the theory of uh, statute of limitations you're, you're pressing upon us, Helen. <laughs> the argument you were just making assumes that. Assumes that the first injury uh, constitutes a RICO injury, even though at that time there's no pattern. And you have not been injured, when you're injured, by a pattern of racketeering activity. If I may explain, the way I view the structure of the statute and the definition itself, it assumes already in place. And the only way by definition that we can, can conclude that a pattern exists is that we have a beginning and that we have an end. It can only be decided whether or not it exists in retrospect. Once we determine that it exists, then that first predicate act is just as much a part of the pattern as the last predicate act. And that's our contention here, and that's why trying to determine when a RICO pattern along this continuum, which Congress has defined, somehow is born or, or springs to life, if you will, under the H.J. Inc. rule of continuity plus relationship. 
that's an extremely difficult thing for anybody to follow and certainly difficult but for it a plaintiff. It still leaves the metaphysical question, I mean, the legal question, of why there can be a RICO injury before there's a, a RICO in existence. <laughs> the, it is a metaphysical question, I, I grant you, but the way that Congress has defined pattern of racketeering activity uh, and the way this court has interpreted it, it can only be decided whether or not it existed in the past. And what the, the framework of your question is that somehow uh, we need to be able to identify it in prospect, and it can't be done, and that's, yeah, that's the I, point. I, I don't see it that way uh, myself. Um, the normal default rule for when a statute of limitations begins to run is that it runs from when the cause of action accrues, when it exists, right? That's the normal rule. Once all the elements of the cause of action exist, then the statute of limitations period begins to run. That's the normal rule, right? Will you concede that? Well, I, I would not concede that, because in Haven's Realty, this court has indicated that where we have a continuing tort, the the proper rule of accrual can be from the last predicate act. Well, it could be, but the normal rule, as I understand it, is that the statute of limitations will begin to run as of the time the cause of action comes into existence. And under RICO, it doesn't come into existence until all the elements are present. Injury, predicate acts, and pattern. Uh, and, and, and as of that moment, then, it could start to run the statute of limitations. Isn't that right? Well, I have two answers to that. First of all, I think the normal rule of accrual, at least in present-day uh, law, is a discovery rule. Discovery of the elements, or certainly discovery of the injury. And, uh, and that rule is modified to, to I require... I think some court have applied such a rule, I would not say that that is the normal rule for accrual of causes of action and running of statute of limitations. Well, that may be. And uh, I guess I've forgotten what the original question was. If you could restate it, please. As applied to your case, I don't see why the statute wouldn't begin to run once you can say all the elements of the RICO cause of action are in existence. All right, and if I may get to that, um, I think what this court has said, for example, in Haven's Realty is if we have a continuing violation, the concerns that we typically have for statute limitations such as repose and staleness, they fade away. What we have here is a congressional objective, as stated by this court in Turquette, Russello, and a number of other cases, uh, which recognizes that uh, long-term pattern felonious conduct uh, is a bane on our economy. Uh, this statute is patterned after the antitrust law, the Sherman Act. And that also can involve a continuing stream of conduct by the violator. And what rule have we applied there for statute of limitations? I understand that, but I think applying, adopting the statute of limitations... What rule have we applied there, do you think? As I understand it, the antitrust rule is, runs from the date of injury. So, and if this action 
RICO is patterned after that, why shouldn't it be the same? Because the rule of accrual is different than the statute of limitations. And I think that the rule of accrual that the Court selects must take account of the elements. And one of the unique elements of RICO is pattern, and that's not — that doesn't exist in the antitrust laws. Mr. Byrd, as I understand it, the principal difference between your case and others is the principal problem that you have is the identification of the source. And in Clayton Act cases, generally, it's known who it is. But here, it isn't a question of injury or pattern. It's a question of you didn't know the source. And that's why I found your argument rather puzzling. It seemed to me the Eighth Circuit test, which was injury and source, discovery of injury and source, plus pattern, was the rule. And that your disagreement really was about the identification of the source. Because if those three elements are there, then on — as I understand your claim, you would be within the statute. Yes, we would. We are — we claim that under whatever rule this Court selects, we think we're within it. But the fact remains that the Clares were not able to identify the source of their injury, and they did everything within their power. And that's the whole thing of your case, is that they knew they were hurt. And then they knew that there had been all this advertising, but they didn't connect the pattern with the source of the injury. That's correct. They did not connect the pattern with the source of the injury. But there is a larger question here, should the Court choose to address it, and that is, why should this Court or Congress be interested at all in granting repose to a criminal enterprise that's engaged in a long-term, continuous pattern of felonious activity? Well, of course, that assumes the question. Part of the statute of limitations design is so that people that are not guilty of being in a criminal activity have the evidence that's fresh to rebut your allegation. And that is true. But if — let's assume that the RICO plaintiff is able to establish that — and meets the pattern element, which is a strict element that this Court has imposed under the H.J. case, two acts are not necessarily enough. We need continuity plus relationship. And if we assume, for example, a 30-year pattern and somebody suing on the act that takes place in the first year, and he can pass that hurdle of identifying a pattern, which under most circuits needs to be pled, then what's happened is we have a 30-year pattern of criminal felonious conduct that nobody stepped up to the plate to stop. And I think in — I wouldn't have that problem if I wouldn't allow the first two, right? You're back to that issue again, whether the first person has a RICO cause of action. I'll give you 10 years, not 30. Well, of course, the definition — That is the distance between the first predicate act and the second. So the person who is injured 10 years later after the first one clearly has a RICO cause of action. And the first predicate act occurred 10 years ago. That's the outside time limit, isn't it? What I — of course, I've tried to address that. And what I'm saying is that once we are able to identify the pattern, that is, 
and, and understand what I'm saying here is that I, being able to identify a per pattern is only a matter of perception. And that means that we have a judge or an attorney or a, or a RICO plaintiff saying, I'm looking back in time, and what, is, what can I perceive from what's gone on in the past? And that implies, of course, discovery. You're, you're in possession of facts from which you should conclude. You see, your clients were incredibly obtuse not to have discovered this. Well, I disagree with that. I disagree with that. I certainly think a fact question exists. And uh, the, the mere fact that the uh, silo may not have met their economic expectations does not, does not necessarily cause them to question the underlying uh, concept that, of oxygen limiting, which was the basis for the sale here. Sorry, I, I agree that, that all of the elements have to have been in, in existence, as, as Justice O'Connor suggested. But what, why do you think all the elements have to be known, including the existence of the pattern? Let's take a, a you know, a garden variety tort action for, for a physical injury to someone. Suppose the physical injury occurs. Doesn't the statute begin to run immediately? And let's assume the injury was intentional, so that the individual could, could do for assault. But he didn't know it was intentional at the time. He just thought it was negligent. Now, he later finds out, three years later, that it was, in fact, intentional. Does he have a longer statute of limitations for assault than he, than he would have had for negligence, assuming the jurisdiction has the same the no, three-year statute for both? No. It's no, a problem. Uh, it, it, indeed, he didn't know that it was intentional, and that made it a higher a higher uh, species of tort, just as the, uh, the, the uh, a series of, of RICO violations makes this a higher species of tort. But that's too bad. But once he, once he learned of the injury, he should have sued. I, I agree with your hypothetical that that wouldn't extend the statute of limitations. But, but here, it's within his power to make that investigation and to find out what we're dealing with here. And I, this is... We have a whole new way of attacking a problem, and I'm suggesting that that we can't get by with using what's termed the traditional rules. No, but even on the traditional rule, isn't it your position also that because one of the elements is fraud, and because fraud at least uh, will will normally be accorded a discovery rule, that therefore you have until the point of reasonable discovery. Uh, even under the traditional rule or a traditional analysis without regard to the peculiarity of RICO itself. Isn't, isn't that your position? Well, I think part of our uh, position, that is part of our position, but understand the rule we're advocating, which is the criminal last predicate action. Oh, I quite realize that, but if you, if you take uh, the, the hypothetical that Justice Scalia gave you and you substitute for the intentional versus negligent act, a fraudulent act, I take it your position would be that even though, uh, so far as the element of, of um, uh, failure to, uh, to uh, supply what they, uh, what they offered, uh, or any conventional tort, uh, the, as to that, the statute might run immediately. Nonetheless, as to the fraudulent element, I thought it was your position 
uh, that the statute would not run until the moment of reasonable discovery. That, that is true. As, and that's so as that you might very well lose the case conceptually uh, by, by the adoption of a Clayton kind of analysis here. And yet, if there were a traditional, if, if traditional treatment were given to the discovery aspect of the fraudulent element, you might still be in court. You well, might still go back and, and have something to litigate. Yes, your answer to that, the answer to that question is yes. Um, the RICO plaintiff, under our analysis, is put into a sort of a classic cash-22 because all of the circuits are requiring significant pleading, not only in terms of pattern, but also identification of the underlying acts. And if you don't plead enough, you're going to be out under Rule 9. And if you wait long enough so that you've got all the knowledge and crystallization that you need to be in order to satisfy this, the motivation of the defendant, RICO defendant, is going to be to come in and say, well, we've been doing this for 50 years. All of the elements existed a long time ago, and here's all the proof of it. Yeah, but he wouldn't, that wouldn't help if the injury were within the statutory period. <laughs> That's true. It, wouldn't, it would not help if the injury were within the statutory period. But the, the, the problem uh, of the catch-22 may get him beyond that time before he can understand that and plead and prove the pattern element. What, what is the, is, is it your view, then, the... Uh statute would run forever? There's no statute? Or is it 13 years? Or what is it? I mean, is, you say the last act, well, all right, there's an act. Separate out the problem of discovery, which I think is the same for any fraud. All right. So imagine everybody knows everything. Now, I'm hurt yesterday. All right, now do I go back for a thousand years? I mean, if this was the last act, it turns out that every five years they committed one act since 1940. Do I go back to 1940? Is that your idea? Let's assume that your hypothetical uh, necessarily assumes that since 1940, uh, the RICO enterprise has been engaged in... Yeah, one act every five years. That's what they do. It's a bank. And what they've done is they've told one lie or one fraud in a loan application every five years. Right. And, and, uh, and it's the same person, and he's done it year after year. So what do we do under your theory? I'm just trying to find out whether there's no statute of limitations in effect or yes. whether it's, there's none, right? The, yeah, the, the answer is that the statute runs from the time of the last predicate act and the... All right. Now, why, why is it the case that in RICO there should be effectively no statute of limitations, but with price fixing there is a statute of limitations? Well, there is a statute of limitations, and it's four years. No, but I mean, and in, in if I have a price-fixing case, I take it, that if they've been engaged in fixing the prices of their electrical conduits for 30 years, I and I've been hurt, I can go back only, f is it three or is it three, I think? All right, so wh why would it, if we're copying the Clayton Act, where you have a price-fixing case, you only could go back three years, but if it's RICO, you can go back a million years, or let's be honest about it, you can go back 15, 20, whatever. Right, and the answer to that question is that the, uh, that the uh, congressional intent, as stated in the preamble and also as recognized by this court, is in part under Turquette to divest the enterprise of all of its ill-gotten gains. All right, in price fixing, we don't like that particularly. I mean, I take it this court when it decided to adopt the Clayton Act as the model, looked at the congressional intent and thought that the congressional intent is best served by copying the Clayton Act. 
Is there something uh, you could point to specifically that would say in this aspect we shouldn't copy the Clayton Act, though in others we should? Yes, and I think it's the congressional policies and objectives that are contained in the structure of the statute itself, as well as the policies underlying the law. And if the structure of the statute shows no concern for the twin issues of repose and staleness, and indeed a RICO plaintiff is required to prove past injuries well, that are well in the past, and a RICO defendant is required to defend those, not only the injuries but the predicate acts themselves, what would be the policy justification for not allowing, uh, for allowing a RICO defendant to get out of divesting themselves of the older ill-gotten gains? The, uh, any other rule uh, would permit the RICO defendant to want to continue, because as long as he is... That argument you know, was raised in Mally Duff. I mean, I raised it. In, in, in fact, you know, I, in, 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 a, in a, uh, a dissent, I, I said there shouldn't be a, sta- uh, a statute of limitations for uh, RICO. You either use the state statute or use none at all in this case. That was rejected, however. I understand that. We have adopted a four-year statute. You have. Surely it has to have some meaning. Yes, it does. And it has no meaning if, in, in, in Justice Breyer's typo, the, the thing can be rejuvenated every five years, every time there's a new predicate act, even though the four-year statute has already passed since the last predicate act. As soon as there's a new predicate act, one year later, the whole thing comes to life again. That, that's not a statute of limitations uh, of any sort that I ever heard of. What the, the policy advanced there is that if you adopt a rule of accrual, once the, the defendant makes up his own mind that I'm going to stop this criminal activity, he knows that four years later his liability is over. If he's foolish enough in year five, then if he's foolish enough to do what you just said, which I think is, uh, you know, a little bit unlikely, but let's assume that it, it, it takes place. Why shouldn't we get him for it? But why what, what, should he be able to get away from it? What, what other statute of limitations works that way, where the statute has run and then someone does something again, and somehow it's all, uh, the, the statute has uh, ceased running? I mean, or ordinarily you would have, if, if there's a four-year statute of limitations and I libel you, I do some, it's uh, the four years expires. If, if I libel you again, it's, it's, a, it's a new cause of action, a new statute, but you can't resurrect the old libel. Well, I, I differ with that. I think that, again, in Haven's Realty, the court just did. Well, just ha- Haven's was an unusual case. The court acknowledged yeah. as much, didn't it? I suspect it's not likely to be repeated. Well, okay. <laughs> Mr. Byrne, I continue to be troubled by uh, the abstract quality of, of your discussion because here it wasn't every five years. It was constant. There was a sales pitch going on constantly. So let me ask you this question. Suppose a veterinarian had come to the Claire's farm in 1978 and said, you know what's causing your cattle to thicken? It's that silo. How much time would you have to sue? Under, under the last predicate act rule, we would still be timely. And I think that that's, uh, there are a myriad of reasons why a person who suffers some type of injury might not sue at the beginning. What, what was the last predicate act? You're, you're saying that there is a new predicate act every time 
the person who has committed a fraud denies that he's committed a fraud? No. And tells the teller that's a perfectly good sign-off. Is that a new fraud? That's a new predicate act. But Why it, is it a new predicate act? <clears throat> the teller has the 64000 it, it, It's in his pocket. He's not getting any more money. Why is there a new fraud? Well, I think he is getting more money uh, from uh, the overall marketing scheme and strategy. There is money being generated not only by uh, the dealer franchise fees, but also by way of sales of repairs on the product, sales of collateral. Sales to other people. And, and repairs to the Claire's themselves. There were repairs within the statutory period, for example, to the silo, uh, that uh, they were motivated to continue to use, operate, and maintain. They the charged product. for these repairs? Certainly. The they dealer made a profit on it, you think? Pardon me? They made a profit on these repairs? Do we know that? I don't think... I don't think there, there's anything in the record that says they made a profit. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned with uh, your, your brief makes this, uh, this point, both for extending the RICO statute and also for asserting that even if we don't adopt your position as to the last predicate act, there was in fact a new and separate injury when these later, when these later representations yes. were made, a, a new accrual, in other words. Let me address separate accruals. Yeah, I, I'd like you to do that. That's what I'm uh, saying. Of course, the circuits are really in a, a big state of confusion regarding this rule of accrual. And does it require separate and independent injury, or does it require a new predicate act? Does it require both? And if so, what is a separate and independent injury, and what is a new predicate act? I mean, uh, the... If we're dealing with a separate and independent injury question, if I may, a very short hypothetical of my own. Assume I own a, a nursing home and I buy a humidifier, and the last two months of a six-month period, and I only use it during the winter and the spring, it creates uh, a condition of molds because I don't have the right filter, and it spews toxins out, and two of my patients die. And uh, who would say that those were not separate and independent injuries. What we have here is a silo that when it's filled, is filled with very good feed. As the year goes by and the silo starts to go down, starts to empty, the defect is such that it begins to create this, this cauldron, this witch's brew underneath the dome, which in the last months of operation starts to injure not only the new feed, but also the different cattle that eat the feed, and they don't all get the same disease. They all get different types of diseases every year and different types of, of conditions and symptoms, which are not identifiable. Does that constitute separate and independent injury? I believe it does, and it would meet the test of, uh, and surpass the test of Glessner v. Kenny that was the one case that uh, discussed this and Bingham v. Zolt. Now, do we have a separate predicate act? And I think we do, because under the uh, RICO predicate acts that we're talking about, which is mail fraud, uh, the, the mail fraud itself uh, is any mailing in furtherance of the fraud or any uh, use of the interstate wires. And we certainly have that in they the... They don't have to obtain anything further. Pardon? They don't have to obtain anything further. It's it usually, a, in effect, an intentionally false statement through the mail intended to conceal uh, their, their... In furtherance their, of the fraud. Yeah. 
That, that would meet the requirement. How is that in furtherance of a fraud? The fraud's already occurred. It's in the past. No, but it's still ongoing. And it, you, have well, to, no, you, you answered no. You I, I thought the answer was it was intended to conceal it. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yes, it is. And that is, is. Is that enough in the mail fraud? Well, it's a new predicate act as part of the pattern. No, I, just, I just want the definition of mail fraud for the moment. If, if, they, if, they, if they make the, the, the fraudulent representation through the mail for the purpose of concealing their prior fraud, does that, uh, does that satisfy all the elements of mail fraud? I believe it does. Okay. If, if the concealment itself is fraudulent. And, and is it a concealment simply to deny that the product sold earlier was defective? That's a pretty loose definition of concealment. I don't keep on insisting, no, that's a, that's a perfectly good silo. That, that is concealment. I, mean, I can understand if you say, well, they, you know, they, they doctored reports about whether the cattle were sick or something like that. That is concealment. But just insisting that there's nothing wrong with the silo, that's, that's concealment. I don't think in all circumstances it would, but, I, but there are some situations in, in which it would. And it would depend upon the circumstances under which that statement was made. And I would hate to have a rule that says that it couldn't be under any circumstances. And I agree with you that a, a construct could be made such that it, it would not constitute fraudulent concealment. Uh, and so uh, I don't know what else to say about that. I would like to reserve it. Well, because I it might not be fraudulent. It might they could make that statement thinking they had a great silo out there, and that wouldn't be mail fraud. That's true. Okay. For, for the dealer, for example. But if they knew the silo was, was bad, and, and a fortiori, uh, if they knew at the time they sold it, uh, that in fact it would not uh, do what they represented, then uh, there would be a fraudulent concealment on your theory, yes. and the mail fraud would be the predicate act. That's correct. Yeah. I'd like to reserve, if I may. Very well, Mr. Bird. Uh, Mr. Ennis, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The majority of the circuits have decided that the most appropriate accrual rule for civil RICO claims is the same discovery of injury rule that federal courts use for civil claims in general. That is a particularly sensible rule for civil RICO for three reasons. First, the rule focuses on injury, which Congress made the distinguishing element of a civil RICO claim. But, Mr. Ennis, you have to have a cause of action in existence, don't you, under RICO? That's correct, Justice O'Connor. There has to be a pattern and the predicate acts and the injury. Absolutely, Justice So Conner. we're not talking about anything that starts before those things are present? Not at all. Under the basic rule that we are proposing, the cause of action accrues when all the elements of a civil RICO claim exist, whether the plaintiff knows all the elements or not. Does that include injury? And the plaintiff has discovered injury. That's the rule we propose, which right. is the now, basic what, discovery what of injury rule. What if it involves fraud? Uh, do we apply the reasonably should have discovered the fraud? Yes, Your Honor. That's the general rule for the discovery of injury rule. Uh, the, all the, the circuits that have used the discovery of injury rule, and that's the majority, have interpreted that rule to mean that the cause of action accrues when all the elements exist and the plaintiff discovers or should reasonably have discovered his injury. 
Discovery of injury is sufficient to induce a reasonably diligent plaintiff to investigate the cause of the injury and to determine all the elements needed to plead the claim within the four-year period. Now, what do we do about the situation of an additional mailing later on? Uh, is there a new cause of action? Uh, Justice O'Connor, there, there are two aspects to your question, if I understand it correctly. Uh, first, if you're asking, what if there's one act that injures the plaintiff, but there's not a second or third predicate act constituting a pattern yet? I think that's not really a question of accrual. That's a question, a substantive question, of what constitutes a RICO claim. The rule you propose would apply equally whichever way the Court resolves that question. But the other part of your question touches on the doctrine of separate accrual. And there, too, we propose the traditional federal rule of separate accrual, which nine circuits have applied to civil RICO claims. And under that rule, as State Farm recognized and other courts recognized, the separate accrual rule means that when there are new, separate, and different injuries within the limitations period, that will start a new claim, a new cause of action. That rule does not apply to this case because both lower courts, viewing the facts in the light most favorable to petitioners, concluded that petitioners uh, suffered no new injuries within four years of suit. In fact, uh, no injuries within six years of suit. So the separate accrual rule does not help these petitions. Mr. Ennis, correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought that the rule was, the discovery rule was injury plus source, not merely injury. And here, as I said to Mr. Bird, it seems to me the whole problem was not injury, was not pattern, but source. These were farmers who knew they had a terrible problem, but they didn't know what caused it. Uh, Justice Ginsburg, to be uh, as candid as I can, I think there's confusion in the lower courts on whether the discovery of injury rule means discovery of the injury, or as a few courts have said, discovery of the injury and the source of the injury, meaning who caused it. The majority of the lower courts say the discovery of injury rule means discovery of injury. I think that's your opinion for the D.C. Circuit and Connors noted that point. And that should be sufficient to induce a reasonably diligent person to find out the source and all the other elements of the injury. You don't need four years if you know both the injury and the source. Presumably the four years is intended to give you time after you've discovered the injury to find the source. Uh, Justice Scalia, I Otherwise, we can have a, a one-month statute of limitations. I think that's c completely yeah. correct, and is the reason why the other competing rule, the discovery of injury and discovery of pattern rule, is not as appropriate for civil RICO as the rule we propose. Once you have discovered both that you've been injured and by a pattern of racketeering activity, there's no reason to give you an additional four years after you know all that you know, need to know, in order to file a claim. When you speak of the pattern of racketeering activity, are you speaking of a pattern of racketeering activity which includes, to your knowledge, fraud? In other words, is the fraud element included in what you know when you say you have discovered a pattern? It, it could be, uh, uh, Justice Souter. Of course, not all RICO actions involve fraud. They can right. involve arson. Well, when it, it does, doesn't. when it, when it does. does, the discovery of the pattern is simply, as you're using the term, means discovery, discovery of the pattern. It means discovery of the acts which in law would constitute a fraud. But there's another, your question raises another good reason to apply the general discovery of injury rule. 
because that rule has been found to be a fair and workable rule when applied in a very wide variety of circumstances to a wide variety of acts. And that makes real sense in civil RICO, given the enormous variety of acts that can constitute a pattern of racketeering activity. I've never understood this fully, but I'm not certain that we have to go into the — I'm not certain we have to go into the question of fraudulent — of when you discover it and what is it called, fraudulent concealment. But if we do, what is it you have to know? I received the letter from the fake real estate company that says, Dear so-and-so, your investment is now worth nothing because, unfortunately, there was bad conditions. All right? So I know that. I know the source. Does it start to run? Your Honor, I believe it would start to run. Well, how does it work, for example, with price fixing? I go out and I buy a toothbrush, and the toothbrush costs $2. All right. I'm injured. It should have cost $1. But I don't know anything about — and I know the source. The source is the toothbrush company. All right? Now, I have no — I don't investigate that kind of thing. Nobody does. And if you get a letter from your bank which says, We're very sorry, but your account is overcharged, you know, I mean, you don't investigate most frauds. All you know is you're paying more money or you're paying — so how does it work? Justice Breyer, that is the Clayton Act rule, the basic Clayton Act rule. The cause of action accrues upon the occurrence of the injury, even if the plaintiff has no knowledge that he has been injured. But there's a thing called fraudulent concealment which operates in order to prevent the very problem that I'm focusing on. That's a different doctrine, and let me try to address that doctrine. The doctrine of fraudulent concealment is not applicable in the circumstances of this case for two reasons. All courts agree — all courts agree that the doctrine only applies when the defendant's acts actually conceal the elements of the claim. There's a distinction between whether they can be self-concealing acts or affirmative acts that conceal, but all courts agree the defendant's acts must conceal the elements of the claim. Here, both lower courts found, viewing their evidence most favorably to Petitioners, that defendants did not commit any acts which concealed the elements of the claim. So in other words, if I'm thinking conceptually, is this right? In cases like price-fixing or fraud, it starts to run from the moment that you discover your injury, i.e., you wrote a bigger check. But some courts say you also have to know the source. That's correct. Which isn't hard to know. But then, if there is fraudulent concealment, as there often would be in price-fixing or fraud, that tolls the statute. If there is actual fraudulent concealment, which has two components, first, that the defendant's acts actually conceal the elements of the claim. That was not this case. Second, that's not this case for a second reason. Both lower courts found, and in fact, nine circuits, at least nine circuits, agree that even when the defendant's acts do actually conceal the elements of the claim, the plaintiff must nevertheless be diligent. And if a diligent plaintiff would nevertheless have discovered the elements of the claim, despite the defendant's acts of fraudulent concealment, the doctrine of fraudulent concealment does not apply. Why do you say there's no actual concealment here? Certainly one of the elements of fraud is that you knew that the product you sold was not going to do what you said it did. Otherwise, it's just negligence, and you're subject to breach of warranty, I suppose, but not to a fraud claim. 
Now, didn't the seller here, A.O. Smith, indicate that it believed that this silo was a properly working silo? Absolutely, Judge. So why isn't that concealment of the element of knowledge that it wasn't a properly working silo? First of all, as Justice Kennedy's question earlier suggested, that question assumes that it is fraud and that my client, A.O. Smith, knows that the silos won't work. Of course it does. I mean, when you get to the issue of whether it's concealment or not, you're assuming there was a fraud. In this case, the reason it doesn't conceal, even if you assume it's a fraud, is that the claims here are based on allegations that my client misrepresented the benefits of this silo. B-2 of the appendix to the cert petition lists the alleged misrepresentations. The lower courts found that long before, six years before they filed, petitioners should have known that all of the representations on which they claimed to rely had not materialized. And there was nothing the defendants could do that could do that. You're retreating to the second item that you raised in your response to Justice Breyer, namely that even where there is concealment, it does not excuse you if the — it doesn't work to the plaintiff's advantage if a diligent plaintiff would have discovered. You're saying a diligent plaintiff would have discovered. No. No. Maybe I didn't express myself as clearly as I should have. I'm trying to address the first point. Whether there's concealment. There's no concealment at all, because there is nothing the defendant did or could do that could conceal from the petitioners that the side of representations on which they relied were not materializing. But that only goes to the contract description. It doesn't go to the misrepresentation, which is an element of the cause of action. And the fact that more than six years before they brought this suit, they realized that the silo was not working as advertised does not support the proposition that they knew that Smith had misrepresented the silo's capacity. Justice Souter, they claim, if you look at B-2 of the appendix to the cert petition, they claim that the representations which they allege were fraudulent included representations that this silo would make it possible for them to eliminate protein supplements. They knew that never happened. One of the misrepresentations was that they would be able to increase their milk production three to five pounds of milk per day. That never happened. Right. And when did they not merely know that those representations were proving to be untrue, but when did they also know that Smith knew they were untrue when they made them? Well, Justice Souter, no one ever knows for sure whether a defendant in a fraud case knows that claims are true or untrue until you've brought the trial and win or lose. It's a question of circumstantial evidence like a great deal else. And I think the only point that I'm making is on the fraudulent concealment rule. It does not answer the fraudulent concealment rule issue to say they should have known that the silo was not living up to its description. The question is, when should they have known that the silo was also the subject of a fraudulent description or representation? Well, both lower courts answered that second question, which is the second question in Justice Scalia's question, by concluding that during the evidence most favorably petitioners, they knew or should have known all of the elements of their RICO claim, including that this was fraud. If it was fraud, more than six years before. Explain that to me, because as a matter of fact, and I don't think this is disputed, these farmers consulted a veterinarian, they had a nutritionist, 
They wanted to know why their cattle were sick. And no one tipped them off to a possible relationship between the sickness of the cattle and the silo. They knew the silo wasn't working, but they didn't know that that's what caused the sickness in the animals. So they, they knew they had a problem. They consulted people. Why wasn't that diligent? Your Honor, it, this case involves a lot of facts, not all of which are in the uh, petition or the appendix. But after reviewing all those facts, including the facts that the, the petitioners uh, could simply have taken feed from the silo to be tested, which is a normal, regular thing that most farmers do at least twice a year, which would have showed them that the feed from the silo either was good quality or bad quality. Uh, they didn't do that. Uh, there were many things available to a reasonably diligent plaintiff whose milk production was going down for 19 years, whose protein supplements did not improve for 19 years, uh, that they could have done to investigate and find out all the elements of their claim. If, if all that is, is correct, uh, let's assume, I, I, I'm not sure that this happened, let's just assume that within four years uh, of the time the action was filed, a representative of the company came out and he looked at the feed with the farmer and he said, oh, that's, that's, that, that's that brown stuff, you want that, that's really good, knowing that that's, that that's not true, knowing that this is exactly what is hurting the cattle. Would, would that have revived the cause of action? No. It's the same answer, Your Honor. It's the same thing as if they say this is a great sign. Because if you should have discovered the fraud earlier, the fact that there are new acts of fraud are, is irrelevant? Unless those new acts cause separate injuries within the limitations period. These did not. Well, suppose this continued to lull him in, into thinking that there's nothing wrong with the silo and he lost 10 more cows. Well, Your Honor, this case, both courts found, and those findings I don't think are properly before the court, because although petitioner uh, in their brief raises a question about whether the lower courts properly applied the summary judgment standard, they did not raise that question in the petition for rehearing in the Eighth Circuit. In their cert petition, the questions presented, but just, in, itself. Just, just with reference to my question, let's, let's assume that they came out within four years, said, oh, this is great feed, knowing that it wasn't, and that ten more cows were... Uh, sick or, or died, and that the uh, plaintiff was lulled into uh, believing that the silo was okay. That would simply be a continuation of the damages that flowed from the initial fraudulent act, if it was fraudulent, inducing them to buy the silo. Why, why, isn't that a, why isn't that a repeated injury? Well, it's not a new injury. It's not a do, different and separate injury, Your Honor. That's the, that's the critical point in the separate accrual document. So, so in Justice Breyer's case where the, uh, a bank is defrauding people on credit, credit cards, uh, if you should have found out 15 years ago but they keep doing it, uh, you can't sue for the, uh, for the last four years or for the period as within the statute of limitations since the new acts have occurred? That's correct. That's the general rule. I thought you said you could recover for the 10 more cows, assuming that it's a new misrepresentation. If it's a new misrepresentation yeah. so, within four years, yeah, which could, causes injury yeah. within four years, but, you could. It so the bank, you can with the bank. The bank that's right. is doing it. You recover. You get just go back four years but, at a time. That's not this case. But fraudulent concealment 
you don't necessarily need a new injury. That, that can toll the statute of limitations, can't it? Fraudulent concealment can toll if there are affirmative acts that actually conceal, if there are acts that actually conceal. And the second question presented is whether respondents' fraudulent self-concealing conduct acts of fraudulent concealment suspend the statute of limitations. So at least that portion of the fraud claim is presented in the petition for certiorari. We don't dispute that the fraudulent concealment issue is presented. We do dispute that any question about whether the lower courts properly applied the summary judgment standard is presented. May I ask you a question, kind of going back to the beginning for a minute? I just want to know what your views, perhaps a substantive question rather than a tolling question. But assume that they sold three silos, each of which was defective, and they knew they were defective, within a five-year period, and the first purchaser is the first predicate act altogether. Does he have a cause of action? Again, Justice Stevens, I think that's a substantive question of RICO. It's different from the accrual rule. Personally, I think that the first person injured by an act, the first predicate act, which later turns out to be a pattern, would have a civil RICO claim once the pattern emerges. But that's my personal belief. Even though there had been no violation of RICO at the time of the century? That it would retroactively create a claim? That's right. And I reach that conclusion because this is a remedial statute, and Congress understood that some of the patterns could take as much as 10 years. Is there any parallel doctrine for that, or is that unique to RICO? It's just strange to me that a RICO injury happens and then the RICO pattern is completed later. I just find that very odd. It is odd, Justice Kennedy, and I don't know of any parallel, and I don't know what lower courts would say in answer to that question. Let me make it so odd that I'm inclined, if you really believe that, to think that the four-year statute of limitations should be interpreted with similar oddity. What good is a four-year statute of limitations if you don't know for even 10 years until when you have a cause of action? Let me just note, I'm sure it's clear, but that question is not raised by the facts of this case because the pattern quite clearly existed well before the purchase of the silo in 1974. They allege there were at least 20 acts of mail fraud on which they relied before 1974. I understand that, but I'm quite serious that my view of the statute of limitations has to depend to some extent upon my view of what RICO does. And if there is, in every case, a 10-year, I don't know, limbo period. No, that wouldn't be true. The fact that the pattern might not emerge for 10 years would not mean you could not have a pattern of acts, some of which are every two or three years apart, that go on for 20 or 30 years. No, but your view would permit the conclusion that the statute of limitations would run before the statute was violated. No, no, Justice Stevens. If that's the answer, I didn't mean to suggest that at all. The statute of limitations would only begin to run when there was discovery of injury and all the elements of a RICO claim were in existence. Now, the Court may answer that in existence question one way or the other. Our rule would apply whichever way the Court answered it. That would mean that if you had a victim of the first predicate act and then three more predicate acts that occur over a five- or six-year period, the statute, the cause of action would accrue at the end of the six years. That's correct, Justice Stevens. That's correct. Mr. Ennis, there's one more piece of this about the discovery of the source. 
There was the continuing st- sales pitch, but so it was also, as alleged, was it not, that the company had done testing on its own. And th- that testing showed that the silo was not performing as advertised. And yet no one who had purchased this silo was told, your cattle may sicken and even die. Isn't, isn't that uh, relevant to the discovery of the source? Well, there, there are two things that I'd like to say about that, Justice Ginsburg. First, that's not what those internal studies show. This company has sold 83,000 of these silos. There have been 270 claims. Three-tenths of one percent have experienced problems. That's not what the internal studies show. But even if they did show that, that would not qualify as fraudulent concealment under the fraudulent concealment doctrine that almost all circuits apply because those acts would do nothing to prevent the petitioners from discovering the elements of their claim. The elements of their claim are the the representations on which they relied proved to be false, their cows were not doing well, they were injured, and and there was a pattern of activity. Known to be false by, by the seller. You have to add that. Well, you can add that, Justice Scalia, if you... You must add that for fraud. You have to be able to allege that. That's correct. Has to be able to plead. Moving at the time. Now, let me. I'm not yeah, got to again, the, if the central point I'd like to make, if I could, about why the criminal RICO rule, which is the only rule the petitioners urge, Justice Souter, they do not urge a discovery rule at all. If you look at their motion for divided response to the motion for divided argument, that's crystal clear. It's also clear on pages 20 and 21 of their brief. They don't urge a discovery rule. The critical problem with the criminal last act rule, like the civil last predicate act rule, is that it would enable a fully knowledgeable plaintiff who knows everything to delay filing uh, for many, many years. It is not tied to the injury component of civil RICO because the last violation under the criminal rule or the last predicate act under the civil rule don't have to have injured the plaintiff at all. They don't have to have injured anyone at all. Now, that makes no sense to use that rule, which is adrift from concepts of injury, in civil RICO, where Congress itself determined that the gravamen of a civil RICO claim is injury and a specific kind of injury, injury to the business or property of the plaintiff. The fact that the last act might injure someone else is totally irrelevant to the plaintiff's civil RICO claim. That's why any rule this court adopts for civil RICO should be tied directly to injury. Now, there are other rule reasons that... Although you acknowledge that it can be tied to an injury to somebody else, if the injured plaintiff is the first one in the, in the series of RICO acts. In that situation, you don't insist on injury to this plaintiff. You, you will wait 10 years to see if any other plaintiff is injured. Actually, the other plaintiff doesn't even have to, even to, have to be injured. It can be a predicate act. Okay, so to that extent, you're willing to buy into the criminal, uh, the criminal rule. Well, to that limited extent, Justice Scalia, but in the normal run of these cases, particularly where you're talking about an ongoing pattern of activity, uh, the pattern would exist roughly at the same time as the first injury. The second reason why the rule we propose makes more sense than later accruing rules is that it is more consistent with the private attorney general function of civil RICO. 
The point of the private attorney general function, since the civil plaintiff can only recover his own damages and cannot punish the defendant for any injuries inflicted on others, is not financial. It's to expose and deter ongoing patterns of racketeering activity before the end of others. You don't ask for the more strict rule of just uh, once the cause of action exists, that's it. You start the statute running. Right. We don't ask for it, but of course we'd be happy with it since we would win under that rule. This claim would have accrued in 1974 and it would be barred in 1978. But we don't urge the Clayton Rule for two reasons. One, the Clayton Rule, although that's the basic Clayton Rule, that occurrence of injury rule has not proved satisfactory even for all Clayton Act violations, which are much narrower in scope than RICO violations. So many Clayton courts have actually imposed different rules. And we think it makes sense to have a single rule for RICO that is broad enough to encompass all the acts that violate RICO. Second, frankly, we think that the Clayton rule is a little harsher to plaintiffs than this remedial statute was probably intended uh, to be. We think that what Congress probably presumed, if it presumed anything at all, was that the general federal accrual rule would apply. And that rule is discovery of injury. And we don't think that in the context of this statute, there's anything in the text or purpose of RICO that would mean that Congress would have intended a harsher rule for civil RICO than the general federal rule of accrual. Of course, if Congress was reading our cases, they would, it would not have expected a federal statute of limitations to apply at all. Well, Much, if, uh, if they read you the statute, we came to that later, didn't we? Yes. So I don't think it's very helpful to talk about what Congress intended. No. <laughs> no. But, Put, put, put it entirely aside congressional intent. In federal courts, it's judge-made law almost always to adopt accrual rules, but those rules are supposed to be consistent with and tied to the purpose of the underlying statute, regardless of what the congressional intent was. And for that reason, we think, since civil RICO, the distinguishing element is injury, it should be discovery of injury that triggers the accrual. Let me conclude by saying that the Havens Realty case, which has been mentioned here in argument, actually proves our point. In Havens Realty, it wasn't a a unique case, Justice Rehnquist, but in Havens Realty, this court rejected the continuing violations doctrine when applied to a claim that required proof of direct injury to the plaintiff, a misrepresentation claim. It found continuing violation doctrine not appropriate in that circumstance only appropriate in the quite different circumstance of discriminatory practices which have indirect injury to the plaintiff, even if they do not directly injure the plaintiff. That is not this case. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Ennis. Mr. Burge, you have about a minute remaining. A minute. Uh, Just two brief points. Our case is not based upon these misrepresentations of future benefits. You can look our complaint, which is probably 50, 60 pages long, and you won't find any of those allegations in there. Our case is based upon the fraud relating to the oxygen-limiting nature of the silo. Secondly, given the variables of uh, farming, uh, there is no way, and we have the expert affidavit in, in our proof from Dr. Olson, it's on if you would care to look at pages 168 through 170 of the joint appendix, it's fully explained in there. Thank you, Mr. Berg. The Thank case you. is submitted. We'll hear-